There's no place like home. He's here! For the holidays. Where's my snack pack? Because no matter how far away you roam. You know what? He smells. If you want to be happy in a million ways. Bob, shut up, shut up, shut up. Oh, I'm out of here. You ever felt that way? How's your Christmas gatherings? Do you look forward to them? Are there some individuals that you don't look so forward to meeting and seeing again? Do you put on a pretend face and hope that you can endure for 36 hours or seven hours or eight hours or one day? What is your family gathering like? Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at those concepts regarding family and how family is very important but at the same time, how it's very complex, and sometimes there are differences, and there are issues, and there are things that aren't so healthy, and, and so hopefully over these next few weeks, we'll be able to address some of the family issues. Look at the husbands, and wives, and mothers, and fathers, and brothers, and sisters, and Weird Al, Uncle Al, and Weird Sally, Aunt Sally, and, and taking a look, how do you bring those pieces together and live in harmony the way God wants us to? Is it even possible for us to live in harmony? Is it possible for us to live in unity? Should we strive to take the step towards reconciliation? And so over the next few weeks, we're going to address those. And today, we're going to begin by looking at what's our responsibility as fathers, as husbands, with the Christmas on the horizon. And what do you do with the weird, weird uh, new son-in-law that comes that's taught your daughter how to dress like a hillbilly? I mean, what do, you, what do you do with that? Do you just love him? Do you say, well... They're in love and they love Jesus, or do you kind of try to fix them up? What do you do with those, those, those moments in time where you want to say something because your family is a little whacked or a little different, or maybe they see you that way? How do you resolve those relationship issues that really are very diverse, different, and sometimes have a lot of complexities to them? I believe it begins by someone taking the lead and saying, we're going to work this out. We're going to make this be the best Christmas gathering ever. It's no secret that families have challenges along the way. It's no secret that there are some fences that all of us need to mend. And the holidays are always good reminders of those realities. Maybe you're just the opposite. Maybe your family lives in complete harmony. But maybe for you, you go to a new level deeper with them where they see you for more than the host. They see you for more as more than the grandfather or the father or the uncle. They see you as a real human being with with complexities and issues that you have and you're willing to address those. But what might happen if we chose to move and set aside our differences as, as fathers and as husbands? So today I'm going to challenge men up to take the responsibility that we have as tender leaders of our families. I'm going to challenge us to take the lead and to go into this dangerous territory first and to address these complex situations by us stepping first and saying, 
I will lead the way through this and I'm willing to do whatever it takes. We live in a world where many men aren't doing this and the condition of the family is in poor shape. Yet I'm seeing more and more as I observe and watch over the last couple of years at Grace Community, resurrections taking place in marriage relationships and in homes. I'm seeing men step up and lead in a tender way and it's exciting, but we have much more work to do. No family situation is beyond the grace of God. Even though there's probably moments that you doubt that grace could change that situation. I want to show you through scripture today where one man saw a bunch of families in complete shamble, saw them in complete ashes. In fact, the scripture says, saw these families on the far, far, far horizons so farly scattered that it seemed impossible that they would ever get back together. Yet one man, one man said, we can do something about this. One man said, that's not the condition that a family should be in, and I choose to do something about it. One man that was bothered by the fact that the families of God had been scattered. One man that says, you know what? With God, I will walk into this dangerous territory and make a difference. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Ushers will be glad to put one in your hand. Turn to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1. We must be bothered by it first, men, in order for us to gain new ground in our relationships with our family. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1. If you got to Psalms, you went too far, go left. Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 through 11. Stand with me and we'll read it together. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Let's read these words out loud together. Nehemiah 1, 1 through 11. Ready, read. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of his servant and your prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success in today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer to the king. You may have a seat. Right we see Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. 
we see right away that Israel is scattered. We see right away that the walls of Jerusalem have been knocked down, have been broken down. We see that they have been exiled. They've been sent out of their homeland. So Nehemiah hasn't even seen the walls personally yet. He's heard a report that the walls are down and he is bothered by it. He is upset. He wants to do something about it. And it says in scripture here that he weeps over this. Church, listen to me. Men of God, listen to me. Women of God, listen to me. He never saw the walls. A report came back and said they're down and he was bothered by it. We must do something about it. He was broken. It says he wept in verse four. He fasted. He sought God. And he said, what can we do about this? Part of the problem is this, when it comes to family situations, whether you have a child that's rebelled, a daughter or son that's far away, whether you have a rift between your mom or your dad, whether you personally as a father haven't led well and you're not leading your wife well and there's friction, part of the problem is we need to come to a point where it bothers us instead of hoping it just goes away. Men's default system is this. There's a disagreement. There's an issue. You know the family's coming together, and you're just saying, just let me endure this. Family, they won't come back again for 12 months. We can just endure this. Or a rift between you and your wife. It comes up. And so what you do, your first default system is to pull away and just hope that it goes away. You don't promise, you promise never to bring it up for the next three days. And you're praying, Lord willing, she doesn't either. And so three or four days go by, and it seems like, wow, we're, we're, we're compatible, we're doing okay. It's like, all right, we're in good condition. We didn't have to talk about it. And then four or five, six days later, something happens, and there it is again. Freshly, the wound is open. And you're so, what do you do? You pull away again, and you just, you're quiet about it, and you think this method is going to bring a good conclusion to the reality that's in front of you. But it doesn't. You must be willing to step through the mess and be the first one through, be the scout out in front and say, I will do something about this. Nehemiah could have heard that the walls were down and said, well, maybe someone else will fix it. Maybe someone else will step up. But he takes ownership of the condition by confessing his own sin first. Look at verse seven. I love what happens in verse seven. He hears the story. He prays out to God after fasting. Then in verse seven, he says this. We have acted very wickedly towards you, God. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. And back up to verse six, he says, therefore, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed. One of the very, and with not the very first step to bring reconciliation into fringed relationships or, or relationships that are frayed is for you to say, you know what? I'm going to be responsible and say, you know what? I probably somehow attribute it to this. I'm going to take ownership. Listen to me, men. You only have control over you. You don't have control over anyone else. You can control what you want to do. And you can say, you know what? I'm probably at fault. God, I'm at fault. Here's how I'm at fault. Please forgive me. I am sorry, God one of the very first things to bring families that are scattered to the farthest horizon back together is for the godly man in the house to say, God, please forgive me. A clean and humble heart God always uses. 
Then he does this. He confesses and asks for forgiveness of the whole community, recognizing there's more sin there. So he goes to God and said, let's clean the slate. Let's start with a clean foundation. Let's build upon that instead of trying to build from six feet under to the top. Nehemiah sees the condition. He cries out to God and he says, Lord, if I'm responsible, then forgive me. Maybe it's time for us as men and fathers and brothers to admit that we're at fault too. Maybe you've given up in an area because you haven't seen turnaround. Maybe it's time for you to say, God, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Maybe it's you sitting down with your family over the holidays and having a conversation that goes like this. Maybe they're grown children and they're coming back with grandchildren and you're around the table and there seems to be this rift that's there. It's like, oh, you know it's gonna be difficult. Maybe it's time that you sit down as the father and grandfather and begin with these words. I love you. I am sorry. I regret what I did. I'm sorry for doing this for you, to you as a, a seven-year-old, eight-year-old. I'm sorry that I wasn't there for you. I'm sorry as a 13-year-old that I pushed you too hard. I'm sorry when you were 17 and 18 that I lived vicariously through your achievements and I sat in the stands and felt good about me because you were good on whatever you did. I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry I put too much pressure. Will you forgive me? Let me tell you something, guys. If you gathered your family around and you began by saying, please forgive me, all the fences come down. All the fences get pushed over. All the fences, and then you say, let's start over. And then you say this, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make this situation more godly and better. And then you gather them around and you say, I'm guilty, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I'm willing to do whatever it takes I can guarantee you that all the defense mechanisms they had on that 500-mile drive to your house, that airplane ride from California to Indiana, that, that, that next neighboring community over where you haven't seen your children for, for months because there's this rift, even between you and your wife, when you say, I'm sorry, let's start the year fresh and new and begin by saying, I screwed up, please forgive me. If you want to bring the family back together, it begins with you. And that's what Nehemiah, he sees the family scatter and realizes they've sinned against God. God allowed them to be sent into exile. He asked for corporate forgiveness of them and for single forgiveness of his own sin. Then this happens. Look at verse 10. He says, they are your servants and your people, chapter one and verse 10, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He prays to God to do something to change the situation. A couple of things that always bother me about this account. And it often bothers me about family situations. How many other men saw the walls in ruins? How many other men knew that the walls were down? How many other Israelites? He was a cupbearer for crying out loud. He didn't have what we would know as a significant place 
in, in occupation. Other cupbearers normally didn't make it very far. They tasted food and wine that was supposed to go to the king. And often it came poisoned because they wanted the king to die. So he would drink it first. And if it had poison in it, he would die. And so cupbearers, that wasn't the kind of job that you said, I want that job. The life expectancy wasn't very long for cupbearers. So it wasn't one that you jumped into. But here is a regular common man sees his country scattered. Where's every other man? Where are the Israelites that are on the farthest point scattered to the farthest horizon? Why isn't one man popping out and say, let's do something about this. Let's gather together. Aren't we God's people? Where is that man? I often wonder, where is the other man? Where are they at? Somewhere they decided to give up. Somewhere they said, you know what? It's not worth fighting for. It's just too bad. It's too difficult. That wall's too big. We could never rebuild this. And they had given up. They lost their fight because they didn't believe their God was capable of restoring the walls and and bringing the families back together. Nehemiah was different, though, than the rest of the men. He believed and he knew that his God was different. He would not settle for the present condition. Think right now in this auditorium. Some of you are ready to give up. Some of you thought about giving up this past year. Some of you are looking at your walls and you're saying, that's too hard. Some of you walk into a challenge and you walk away from it because the first test that comes that causes you, maybe you don't like it, maybe it's too difficult, and maybe you don't do so well at it, you run from it. Nehemiah doesn't run from the problem. He runs to the problem through his God. That's what we need to do when it comes to leading the families and restoring the families. He would not settle for his present condition. Some of you are looking at the torn down walls and you've decided they can never be repaired. God does not want you to waste your life, men. He created you to be a difference maker. He called us to be the point man. He called us to stand out in front in a loving way, in a tender way, not rule over our wives, not rule over our families, not saying, hey, I, what I say goes, but tenderly taking your wife, getting her advice, gently leading her and say, honey, what do you think? What do you think, Beth? Taking what she has and then taking and making a conclusion to say, this is what we would do. Also, we take the lead in the stand. And if it doesn't work out, we bear responsibility instead of saying, boy, I should have never listened to you. We're supposed to take the brunt of the heat for the families, husbands, not pass the blame. Nehemiah doesn't pass the blame. He says, you know what? I'm part of this problem too. And so God, forgive me, forgive us, use me. You see, most have lost their fight because you believe the lie that your marriage or your family or that weird uncle or that weird aunt or that, that man that your daughter married that ch- has changed her a lot. It's like, I'm just gonna put up with it. Listen, that's your flesh and blood. She probably still loves Jesus Christ. He might be a little weird. Guess what? He, he's redeemed by the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. And just because he looks a little different, and he might live a little different, but still lives godly. You love him. One man is about to save a fractured nation 
One man is about to gather the families that are at the farthest horizons, Nehemiah says, and bring them back together. You see, you and I don't need or have to finish like this, torn down and saying, this is as good as it's going to get. And some of us are just tired from fighting. We're just like, man, God, I've tried this. I tried that. Listen to me. You fight until you breathe your last breath. There is no out in this relationship. This is the one. These are the ones that God has given to you. You fight until you breathe your very last breath and lean on God to do so. I love watching people that believe this. And I've watched many men through the years believe this. I love watching two people face the same situation. Same thing happens to them. This person responds this way. And runs. This person responds, turns to God, and faces it. And then I watch what happens to that relationship. Often the person that leans into God is the person that overcomes that situation. Look what happens now. Look at chapter 2. Look what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, Nehemiah the cupbearer says, I took the wine and gave it to the king. In other words, I tasted it first. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are still ill? This can be nothing but sadness in your heart. And then Nehemiah says this, I was very much what? Why was he afraid, by the way? Have you ever wondered why he's afraid? Listen to me. Cupbearers weren't allowed to go to the king with a sad face. If they went to the king without a joyful face, he could say, take him out of here and take him out and put him out, kill him. So cupbearers weren't supposed to go to the king and hand him something like, he's supposed to, in other words, hey, this is good drink. This is good food. If you went to the king and you had a sad face, he might think, oh, something's not good. And so if you went to the king as a cupbearer without a joyful countenance, he could say, you're dead. So he was afraid. His heart was disturbed. He was bothered by the walls. He was being down. He was bothered by the condition of the families of Israel. And he said, someone needs to stand up. We need to rescue them. It's the same way that men do in this. It's, I watch Terry Wagner. I watch his heart for orphan kids. It's that, that deep bothering that keeps you up. It's like, I got to do something about it. It's the men of God that said, I can't let my family stay this way. It's you as a church that say, we can't let those kids from Cambodia and Thailand just lay in the streets. Somebody's got to step in. You got to be bothered by it first. Part of the problem is we're not bothered. Well, we just go through a day and it's like, I just can't wait till the rapture occurs. Praise God. I got her and she's got me. Look at us. That's not the picture I see in the Bible. So Nehemiah goes to the king. He's got a sad face, and it says this, I'm very much afraid, in verse 3. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. I love that interjection. Have you ever had someone ask you something? And it's like they ask you a difficult question, like, what do you want? What do you think? And all of a sudden you pray, please, God, give me the words. God, give me the words. Give me the words. That's what he's doing here. Then I prayed to God of heaven, give me words. Give me words. Give me words. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can what? What's it say? Rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take? 
And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asap, the keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy? And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governor of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letter. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. I mean, he's got backup. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, heard, officials heard about this, they were very much happy to do everything. Is that what it says? They were very disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Let me just say this. When you're about to do something great, and you're about, with God's help, to resurrect family matters, there will be an all-out fight and opposition from the enemy against that. The enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And so the very thing that he wants is not for you to walk evilly into this situation without some opposition. And so the opposition comes. Sanballat comes up and Tobiah and says, I don't like what's taking place. You and I don't need to finish this way. Put yourself back in the game instead of hoping it just gets better on its own. You'll be opposed. And by the way, sometimes it comes from those within your ranks. I'm often intrigued by the friendly fire that takes place when someone wants to make a difference with a ministry or community or family Often your greatest opponent is someone from within inside your own walls. It just happens. I found it interesting. It wasn't that I wasn't surprised by it. Even with the new men's ministry that we've, we've seen men come alive, praise God for it. And, and praise God for all the other stories that aren't connected with the men's ministry fight club. Praise God, there's thousands of stories. And I, we, 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 we praise God for that. But it's interesting. Over the last few years, I've heard stories from wives. Can you get my man? Jim, and I've gotten emails. Can you call up my man? Can you send him an email? Can you give him a personal invitation? Can, I, I just want to see him lead. He always talks about being too busy, and he's got all these excuses. I tried to talk to him, but I don't want to be that nagging wife. Jim, would you please? Jim, would you, 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 would you? Praise God for a wife that longs for a husband to lead. It's been interesting. There's been men that have taken the lead, who have tenderly walked out and have labored hard on their own, and sometimes through Fight Club and other ministries. And all of a sudden, they lead. You know what has happened? This friendly fire has begun amongst. This jealousy has surfaced. Now there's these groups, small groups of wives who are saying, how come he gets all the attention? How come he gets the exercise? How come he gets the regard? How come he gets this? How come he gets that? I don't like him leading. It's an interesting dynamic. The very thing that women want is often the very thing when they get it that they fight against. You know what's happened? A lot of men have raised the bar and ladies are seeing that. And so jealousy surfaced. Sometimes it comes from amidst the own people who wanted it in the first place. So opposition doesn't always come from the outside. Sometimes it comes from the very people that you're fighting for. Nehemiah looks at the walls. And he wants to make a difference. And so it says, 
opposition came. Look at verse 11. I went to Jerusalem after staying there three days. I set out during the night with a few men. If I had not told anyone what my God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem, there were no mounts with me except the one I was riding. In other words, he went by himself. Verse 13. By night, I went out through the valley of the gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed, verse 14. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's gate or pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone, what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in what? Disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start what? Rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Gershom the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We are servant. We will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Opposition continues. He admits that the family situation is a disgrace. And then he says, let's start rebuilding as do those around him. Just pause and consider this for a second. He didn't add to the mess by blaming anyone else. He didn't say it's because of them, it's because of that man and because of that family and because of them. He didn't blame anyone else. He just took it into his hands, gave it to his God and said, God, let's do something about it. He didn't drag up the past, why this happened and that happened. He didn't bring up all these other things. He said, let's move on. God, forgive me, forgive us. We need a new day. Let's just start rebuilding. And if God is in it, it can be done, basically, is what he's saying, even to the opposition that came. Hey, listen, he says to him, listen, you might think you're going to stop this. You're not even part of this. My God is bigger than this. Part of the problem when it comes to family issues is we first have to believe it's possible to see resurrection take place in reconciliation. Turn to Romans chapter four. Let me show you what I mean. Romans chapter four. Look at Romans chapter four and look at verse 18. Romans four and verse 18. I love this New Testament passage that refers to an Old Testament account. Romans chapter four. Look at verse 18. Romans 4 and verse 18 says this, against all what? Abraham in what? Did what? So look at it again, against all hope. In other words, there wasn't a fat chance. Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was good as what? since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through what? 
regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had what? To do what he had what? This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham knew he was as good as dead. He knew that Sarah's womb was as good as dead. You know, you've heard me say this before, but you don't go to Greencroft and hear anything about birth announcements very regularly. It just doesn't happen. And so there was this birth announcement at Greencroft. And so against all hope, he still believed because he believed with his God all things are possible. So in other words, you look at your family situation. I don't care how fractured it is. I don't see how difficult it is with your daughter, with your sons, with your moms and dads. No matter how difficult it may seem, we can have the same kind of faith against all hope. We have hope believing that God can turn it around. Nehemiah is a classic example of that. He looks at the walls. He's the cupbearer for crying out loud. His job description wasn't architect. His job description wasn't carpenter. His job description was, I'm bothered by this and God can do something about it. That's the steps that we need to take as fathers and husbands. This could be the best Christmas ever your family could have. They can meet a new dad, a new grandpa. They can meet a new brother, a new husband. Your relationship might be in ashes, but God loves redeeming ashes. Right now, picture in your mind, if you can, what your family could look like if you were really persuaded that God had the power to change it. Picture that. Sometimes we just look at the mess and say, it's too ugly. It's in total destruction. Everyone's separated. She lives in California. He lives in New England states. We're here in the Midwest. We are scattered as far as from the east is from the west. There is no way God could ever resurrect it. Instead of looking at the ruins, look at God and say, God, this is what I believe. I'm hoping beyond hope that you can use me to bring us back together. Picture that in your mind. For some of you, it might be just raising the bar with your family. Maybe you're just kind of coasting. It's like, oh, it's Christmas, all right. And you know, I'm a good dad. I love my kids and I love my wife. And, but there's these things that she would rather you be doing. She would rather that you be a lot healthier than you are. She's spoken to you about it. She would rather that you would lead the family in prayer and she's spoken to you about it. Yet you got all these other good things. And so you set aside and say, well, at least I'm doing this. Maybe for you, it's saying it's time for me to step up and lead and raise the bar. Listen, men, husbands, dads, we're supposed to be the scouts out in front, not our wives pointing us along and saying, hey, come be like me. I wish you would do this. We should be the ones leading the way and say, come on, let's go. There should never be a point where they're pulling us. We're supposed to be leading them arm in arm and saying, let's conquer the nations with the power of Jesus. When you look at your family, who's leading the way spiritually? Who's leading the way physically? Who's leading the way intellectually? Who's leading the way relationally? Who's stepping in and saying, I believe I have faith beyond faith to make this happen? The answer to that question will determine if you need work or not. We need a resolve to fight back. Determined people who follow hard after God will not let hell nor high water stop them from being the family that God wants them to be. 
blended families. Think about how beautiful it could be if, if the father stepped in and said, you know what, it's not a perfect scenario. I have beautiful stepchildren. You have beautiful stepchildren. And there are formers all around us. Let's do what godly people would do. Let's take the first step and say, you know what? If I've said anything to you, and if I've said anything to you, and if I've done anything that's been sinful, I am sorry. I am sorry. Regardless of what they've done to you, you cannot control them, but you can control you. This might be the Christmas that you turn it all around. Your kids are left in the middle of this clash on the outside edges. They don't know whether to believe mom. They don't know whether to believe dad. They don't know when they're with mom, she's talking about dad. And with her dad, she's talking about mom. Make sure that when they're with you, that you talk about Jesus. Listen, this could be a year of resurrection and reconciliation, dads, if we take the lead. We need a resolve to fight back. Joshua 24, 15 says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Nehemiah had opposition. Look at chapter four. It wasn't like, look at chapter four and verse six. It wasn't like he didn't have opposition uh, up against him. Look at chapter four and verse six. It says, so we rebuilt the wall. Nehemiah four, verse six. Till all of its reach half its height. For the people worked with all of their what? Heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very, very happy. And they served them lemonade. Is that what it says? No. They were very angry. It was opposed. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble just like the enemy does. But we prayed to our God. And we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of our laborers is giving out. And there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. They were weakening. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see it, we will be right there among them. And we'll greet them and encourage them and say, good job. No, we will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us, us 10 times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack. There was fretting. There were warriors amongst the camps. And we can't do this. We can't do this. No one's ever done this before. Let's stop. Let's stop. Let's stop. <gasps> Look what happens next. 13. Therefore, Nehemiah says, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places. Posting them by what? What's it say? With their what? Spears and bows. I love this picture. Stand firm in the name of the Lord. Nehemiah says, the only way this is going to happen is if we all pull together. Only way it's going to happen, sis, is if you come in and you talk to mom and I'm there with you. Only way it's going to happen, brother, if it's you come in and sister comes in and you got the riff. We're going to center around God. We need to work together. We can't work independently. And someone needs to take the lead and say, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And men, it can be us. And so Nehemiah says, I just took them family by family. Let's put the Browns here. Let's put the Shivelys here. Let's put the Gingriches here. Let's put the Millers here. Family by family. Let's put them here. Let's put them here. And so you know what happened? Family stood arm in arm and said, and the father said, 
you're not getting through these walls. We're going to rebuild the families and we're bringing them back together. So family by family by family by family, Nehemiah said, let's link arms. Dads take the lead. And slowly but slowly, the walls were built back and people started coming back to Jerusalem. All because one man was bothered. He might've had opposition from his own family, but he didn't let it stop him because he knew he could see the finished product. And he said, not on my watch, but I will not let the enemy defeat us. Now listen, out of that comes this. Look at Nehemiah chapter four. Look at verse 14. Nehemiah said this, after I look things over, look what things over? Family after family, man after man leading the way. I stood up. Now just picture him. And I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people within hearing this, just picture him. Look at you, he's looking over this thing. I stood up and I said to them, do not be afraid of them, saying Ballot, Torah, Ashdad, whoever your enemy is. Do not be afraid of them, for our Lord is great. Remember, the Lord is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. All it took was one man who was willing to do that, who said, my family's under assault. I will not concede that we can't do anything about it. There's something that gets, always gets lost in this story that I want to bring back. Look at chapter 7. We'll close with this. Look at chapter 7. They rebuild the walls. They have swords and weapons. They're ready to defend. And the, finally, the completion of the wall. And then in chapter 7, it says this. Look at verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. And the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put into the heart, my heart, to assemble the nobles and the officials and the common people for registration. By what? Families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. And this is what was found written there. These are the people from the province who came up from captivity out of the exile. And so he begins to read these names. Now, picture this if you can. They had been scattered to the furthest horizons. The walls were down and now they're rebuilt. And Nehemiah gathers them together and he starts reading off family names. Brown, Smith, Zadai, Elam, Shaftada, Atzib. And you know what they began saying? Here, here, I'm back. Here, I'm standing in the ashes. I'm no longer on the furthest horizon. And name after name after name of family was read. Here, 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 here. I love this picture. One man stood out front and said, I'm going to see God resurrect this family come hell or high water. I have hope beyond hope that my God can do it. And listen, men, that's the kind of leaders that we need in our families. It is. Let me ask you. Any man here have a family name that they're going to say here? Any man here have a family name that says not on my watch? Any? That's it? That's it? Come on, let's hear them. Let's hear you in the link. Come on, I can't hear you. Let's let the link hear us. Come on, what are some names? What's some family names? I heard that one, Dandino. Nehemiah rescued this nation 
because he had a determination to not let it remain in ashes. And after he stood up and looked things over, he said to the nobles, officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord was great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. God, give us that spirit as men today. I pray that we'd be willing to take that kind of stand as men. I pray that we wouldn't retreat off of our watch. And I pray when opposition comes, sometimes from our own wives, that we would stand in the face, whatever sent our way, and say, not on my watch. I want to see the families from the farthest horizons come back together. Jesus, give us that kind of faith. Help us to lead well. May our families always look ahead and see us out in front and know where to go. May we become the lead men in the families. In Jesus' name, amen.